Good morning, friends. Uh, I bring you greetings once again from the other more densely populated end of Long Island. Uh, we've been coming out from Brooklyn, I think, to preach uh, on occasion for about 10 years now. Uh, and I think this is one of the first times I've been out here without my four children. So we're relaxed. It's just it's nice. It's good. Um, I want us to look at Psalm 3, which is printed for you there. We'll read it in just a moment. Um, but just a word uh, of sort of preparation. If I could encourage you or uh, my people in Brooklyn uh, to any of the spiritual practices that you might uh, explore as Christians or people considering Christianity, I think learning and memorizing and dwelling in the Psalms is one of the most important I could think of. Uh, because, as we'll see in a specific issue this morning, uh, the Psalms are given really to give us language that we don't have inherently. Uh, it's the language that God has given for us as we walk on this pilgrimage in life. Uh, when we encounter new things, that there's language here that is meant to uh, articulate and shape uh, all of the things that we feel and experience individually and corporately together. And so it's, it's a powerful thing to know the Psalms. And if there's no better uh, argument, it's simply this, that uh, those of you who are exploring Jesus or who know Jesus and love him as your Savior, uh, these, this was the language that he himself learned. Uh, and if you look and read the Gospels, you will see over and over again that Jesus is quoting the Psalms or he's understanding his own life in light of specific Psalms or people are applying the Psalms to his life. And so he used them as the language of his pilgrimage. And so they are beneficial for us as well. I want us to see, I'll say one thing, uh, the first couple psalms really, if you just want to explore the psalms, are the introduction to what the 150 psalms are about. Uh, and you'll see really in the, the first two are kind of companion texts, they go together. And what they set up is that there's this image, this language they're about to give you throughout the psalms is there so that you can stay on the path in this pilgrimage towards blessedness. That's where God wants you to go. And it's, it's a religious word, I realize, but it really is the word of faith for happiness. For when God has favored a person and everything is working well for them, everything is going the way it's meant to be, and they have harmony within and harmony around them, that's the blessedness that God wants for you and for me. And so he says, Psalm 1, he says, individually stay on that path. This is the path you should choose, the path towards blessedness. And then Psalm 2 says this applies to nations as well. It's not just an individual thing. All of the nations, all the peoples on earth together should follow this path towards blessedness. And then we get to Psalm 3, and we see some things that happen when you're trying to follow the path of blessedness and how the Psalms will help us in those times. And so let's read it together here, and then we'll consider it together. Psalm 3, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies 
on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is God's word given to us because he loves us. And let's consider it now together for a few moments. This psalm we see, Psalm 1 and 2 have set up that there's this path, there's this way that walks towards the land of blessedness. And we are to follow it. And now, in Psalm 3, we encounter things that happen on the way in our own lives, right? What happens when you're trying to find true happiness in this world? You're trying to follow perhaps even the steps of faith that lead not just to happiness, but to true happiness, blessedness. What happens when there's a big dis- there's a there's something in your way or you get stuck in the woods and there's this gap there's this distance that seems now ever deeper between where you want to be and where you actually are that gap between what we expected life would be for us and then the reality of our experience especially when what we hoped for wasn't just a vague wish, but we actually felt we were owed something. We were perhaps promised something, that this is the way it was meant to be. And yet, this is not my experience. See, that place that I'm describing, that's the ground when you find yourself there in which sadness and sorrow begins to grow in our hearts. Is it not? Whenever you thought a friendship was going to finally give you this kind of companionship and intimacy and instead something has severed it or made it cold and short. Sorrow grows there. Or the same thing in any relationship. Marriage is not as fulfilling as you thought it may be. Your career you thought would fulfill you is not living up to your hopes for it. Your family even though you love them, disappoints what you thought they might do at this point in your life together for you and for one another. Or even, more specifically, in your Christian faith. I gave this a try. And this, again, still here? You see, that distance between what we expected and reality is where sorrow grows. And I know, it's really hot outside. It's beautiful. It's this weekend out here. uh, And... No one wants to talk about sorrow, but see, sorrow happens all the time. Sorrow is indiscriminate, and so we should talk about it, even as they do in the Psalms. Pastor Mark, for example, just this weekend uh, is doing a funeral and a memorial this morning. Sorrow doesn't take a break. You can see the news and realize sorrow doesn't stop for the summer. But we don't really even need circumstances to make us think about sorrow. The fact is, we need to talk about sorrow because even in our own hearts, we are trying to constantly suppress it, right? You think about you're sad inside, there's something that you're sorrowful about, and you realize that your friends were only going to tolerate you so long if you're constantly bringing the vibe down, right? You know, if you're just like Eeyore. Your family may have taught you Although going to counseling is great, they may have also told you something like you're supposed to outsource your problems to professionals, not to your family. These things around us, or again, it may just be in our hearts, that we actually want to distance ourselves from the sorrow within us. 
I think one particular temptation we have in the modern world, uh, this was decades ago, actually, this science fiction writer, Cory Doctorow, in an essay, he referred to our computers as an ecosystem of interruption technologies, an ecosystem of interruption technologies to distract you at any point. And he called it that before smartphones, right? In your pocket, wherever you go, yes, kayaking even, I suppose. Uh, I don't know how that works, but uh, you're kayaking and you have your phone on you and there's interruption technologies. Uh, some of you may know the comedian Louis C.K. Uh, you may have seen this video because it went kind of viral, but he years ago was on Conan O'Brien's show and he was explaining uh, to to uh, Conan O'Brien that he doesn't want his kids to have cell phones. And he's like, why don't you want your kids to have cell phones? It's the modern world. You live in New York City. They have to have cell phones. And he says, no, I, want th- I don't want them to have cell phones because I want them to be sad. And of course, there's laughter. Oh, he's a comedian making a joke. But he keeps talking and he's a little bit earnest. And he says, no, no, you don't understand. I realize like my phone is distracting me from being a full, fully human person kind of. And he describes a scenario where he was driving down the highway somewhere and this really emotionally intense Bruce Springsteen song comes on the radio. And it starts to move him. It makes him feel melancholy. And he felt himself actually starting to tear up in this first thing that he wanted to do was to go to his phone and start texting someone to make jokes about it. Just talk about, hey, you know, like take a selfie. It's me in my car. Like, you know, listening to Bruce Springsteen rocking out. And he didn't. He put it down. He pulled over and he said he just let the song wash over him and he started weeping like a little baby on the side of the road. And then afterwards, he felt this profound sense of gratitude for his life, right? And what he said was, in the end, that we often take that temptation to let ourselves be distracted from sadness, to be interrupted. And this was his quote at the end. He says, you don't ever, in this situation where we let ourselves be distracted, you don't ever feel really sad or really happy. You just feel kind of satisfied with your product. And then you die. And that's why I don't want to get phones for my kids, right? (laughs) His point, I think, is really profound there, though. We don't want to sit still or think about sorrow because it is that, it's that dark forest that we find ourselves in. And when we find ourselves there, we really question all these things. We question who God is. We question who we are. And ultimately, we have deep and poignant questions about whether or not we're ever going to get through this to that land of promise, of joy, of true happiness, of blessedness. And because we don't want to think about that because it would cause us to lose hope. And if we lose hope, we're stuck in the shadowlands forever, stuck in the woods. But again, this psalm is language for the whole journey. And this psalm in particular, it's the first thing after Psalm 1 and 2, setting up the promise for the whole world and for individuals to get the blessedness. The next psalm is this psalm that tells us what happens when we encounter sorrow in our lives and in the world. And maybe for that reason, Psalm 3 is traditionally a morning prayer that all of the ancient monastic traditions, so all of the old monks, the early church, and the nuns, this was the first prayer they prayed each morning. What did they think about the day? What does it teach you about the day to prepare for and expectations? That they prayed this each morning every day. They knew that the pilgrim life is a journey full of sorrows. And so, friends, this is the theme. I'm going to unpack it just in two pieces this morning. When you encounter sadness in your journey. The challenge and the promise from Psalm 3 really here, the encouragement, is that we should share sorrows. 
that we should share our sorrows. See, you see it here in Psalm 3. I'm not going to go verse by verse, so if you're worried that this is going to turn into a two-hour sermon, it's not, I promise. David himself was in the woods. He was in the shadows. He was in sorrow. If you don't know David's story, I'm going to read you a little bit of a quote. This is a direct promise, okay? A sort of a vocalized in the world promise given by God directly to David himself. Here's what it said. In 2 Samuel 16, you can find this. The Lord says to David, thus says Yahweh. I took you from a pasture, from following sheep, that you should be the prince over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you went. I've cut off all your enemies. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will make a place for my people Israel and will plant them, and they will dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more, and I will give you rest from all your enemies When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits sin, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. What promises, right? And yet, his reality, David's reality, his experience, is a far distance from those promises. His current reality is threatening his own actual personal peace, his life. It's endangering the faith of the entire people of God. And it's endangering the public safety of the nation of Israel which was David's work, what he had built. His whole life work is on the brink here. You see, he puts this in the subtitle. This particular psalm is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. See, David's experience, he is now fleeing from Absalom, his son. Remember that promise? Your offspring is going to do all these blessed things in the world? And we will establish it forever and bring peace to Israel. Instead, David is having an experience in which ever since he committed a grave sin, he saw someone else's wife, he took her, and he had his friend, the husband of this woman, murdered to cover up the fact that he had taken her for his wife. Ever since that happened, his children had distrusted him, that he would do the same thing to them. And so David's sin had led to this family chaos. And his son Absalom had seethed with bitterness at his father all these years. And now he's leading a coup, a political coup that he's been plotting, even though David trusted him. And he's turned all of these leaders against David. And David has had to sneak out of the city and is hiding in a literal valley. Okay? That's what's happening. A far cry from the promises that God had given him. But that's just the prelude, right? In verse 1, it says, Many are saying of me. Many are saying of my soul. In verse 2, There is no salvation for him in God. See, if you were to read a little bit more of 2 Samuel, you can read at this time when David composes this prayer that his opponents are not just trying to kill him, so harm him physically. 
They are calling his very identity into question. They are saying, see, God has left David, that nasty sinner. David's done all these terrible things, and so God has abandoned him, and David has no right to be our king anymore. And this quote is so colorful, I'm just going to read it to you. In 2 Samuel, this man comes out, and he's following David around, cursing him, it says, with curse words. He throws stones at David and all of David's servants. And this is what he said. Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you've reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you. You are a man of blood. David's in a low place. And people are throwing his failures in his face. Those very things that he felt sorrowful about within his heart, are coming back to haunt him, and he is being shamed by them. And again, I don't know, David didn't have a smartphone. I don't know what his temptation was to stay busy or to distract himself. But the other option of not distracting yourself that we don't often take, or maybe we do sometimes in different ways when we decide to face a problem, something that's making us sorrowful, is to try to just take things in our own hands, you know, start problem solving. And that can look like raging and claiming your rights. It can look like plans of action. It can even look in its own strange way like just despairing. I'm going to give in to this and maybe that will purge somehow. See, David doesn't distract or look for a way to manage his crisis. He shares his sorrow. And the first way he shares his sorrow is to share it with God. That's what I want us to see. When you experience sorrow and you're sharing it, you need to share it first with God. You see, David doesn't try to distract himself. He doesn't get busy. He immediately takes the thing that's causing him sorrow straight to God. And this is, I know it's simple to say, but it's actually the hardest thing to do. Because God is the one that seems to have left David in this gap. I mean, you might even say that the distance between his experience and the promises God gave him feels exactly like the shape of God's absence in his life. And so the God who's left you in, this, in the lurch, why would you go to him? But David does. He goes to him. And what I want to say is that's what a lot of faith is in this journey. When you encounter sorrow, shortcomings from what we've been promised, it's to go to God and to do that relational maintenance with him. To talk to him about the distance between what he's promised and what you experience. I mean, David likely prayed this prayer from the lowest point in Israel at the time, physically. The Jordan Valley. Looking up from a long distance where he's been exiled at the top of the holy hill on the mountain where he spent time with God's presence. And now he's hiding in caves out in this valley. Right there, he takes his sorrow to God in this psalm. And so sharing sorrow with God is not, first and foremost, friends, like just kind of spilling your feelings in the air, right? Or even just having private turmoil and anguish. It's making sure that you take those things to God. Do you go first to him when you're sorrowful is a question we might ask. Do you share with him the specifics of the things that are causing you anguish? Or do you go somewhere else? Distraction, 
plans of attack to fix the problem? What's your first reaction when you see tragedy on the news and it upsets you? Is it just to go jump right on Facebook and read all the comment feeds and the debate about it and to jump into those things? Do you let yourself just have a moment of sadness, but then you quickly distract yourself with whatever hobby brings you comfort? Or do you take this time, this space, to go to God in prayer? And again, we don't want to do that so much because it makes us wrestle with who God is. Is he the God who's absent, who's left us here, and therefore, we suspect, doesn't love us? Which, the secret here, friends, that is the true root of all sorrow. Is this fear, this maybe taste of an experience that leads us to believe that God doesn't love us. If he did love us, I wouldn't be here And so you don't want to look that in the face because you're afraid you might find a God who doesn't love you. But David takes the time to wrestle with who God is again. Everyone's saying, it's the God who doesn't save you, David. You're too bad. Right? But he goes to God with his sorrows. And as he does it, he's forced, he is helped. He is reminded of the story, his own story, of the ways... God has saved him time and time again in the past, has saved Israel, his people. David remembers his narrative. He remembers God's character of always coming through to save him again, save him again, deliver him again. And he sees his story now then through the eyes of faith that remember the promises and then endeavors to trust God now even in the woods, even in the gap. You see, he starts to see who God is as he does this. Who is God? Is he just the one that everyone else says he is? The one who's abandoned you, David? The one who knows you're just a bloodthirsty, nasty man? David starts to pray, and he goes to God with the sorrows, and he says, No, Lord, you, whatever they say, whatever I even think about myself, none of that matters. You are a shield, verse 3. You are a shield about me. And that word is a specific kind of shield. It's, not, it's, not, it's the kind of shield that isn't just in the front where you're defending yourself, but it goes all around you. So when you're going into warfare, it's a, a shield for the combatant, not the one who's retreating. So David is going into his sorrow, going into all these enemies around him, and he's saying, you're my shield when I walk forward. You are my glory. Not my own worth, good or bad. Not what others say. You're my glory. You're the one that lifts up my head. He keeps talking about it. He says, you're the one who answers my loud cries. You're the one who lifts my head from shame to dignity, right? You're the one who defends me. He even talks about uh, going to sleep. I love that. In the midst of your sorrow, I mean, your anxiety. And anxiety and anger, by the way, is just in the, often the way we try to cover up sorrow. You can't sleep because you're either so sad or so worked up or so angry about this thing You can't sleep, but David says right in the middle, with his enemies hunting for him, when he goes to God and sees who God is again, and sees who he is in God, he can just lay down and sleep. Wake back up again, because God sustains him. See, for David, the reality of his sorrow is not a reason to retreat from God or to go in self-preservation mode. It's an invitation, a fresh invitation, to share his sorrows with God, and by thus doing encounter God again 
in fresh ways. The God who loves him, the God who is faithful, the God who is his glory, who lifts up his head. And then he finds himself again. David not just hearing the curses of people screaming about how unworthy he is or the shame in his own heart, encounters the God who delights in him, who is his glory, who is his identity. And so sorrow becomes this beautiful opportunity to move, to be uprooted from these places where we try to put our identity, our safety, our security, our happiness, and to have it moved into deeper, richer, safer places. Sorrow did this. Sorrow made David once again put himself in God, not to build his own kingdom. God does this for us as well. If we will share our sorrow with him, he will help us to find in the very place of our sorrow, God again, the one who is faithful, the one who loves even in that pain. The one who tells you you're not defined by what you think of yourself, good or ill, or what others think of you, but by his love for you. And so as he moves to verse 7, he now has confidence to ask God for things, right? The God he's let down. The God he may have thought a moment ago, God has let him down. Here's where he is. But by now he's moved through this process of sharing his sorrow with God, and he gets to verse 7, he says, Arise, O Lord, save me again, basically, now. Come again in fresh ways, my God. You're the one that strikes enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to you. In other words, it's not up to me. I don't have to control how to get through this experience. You will do it. He's got renewed confidence in God. New hope, new experience of God's love and saving. And so the first thing is, can we share our sorrow with God that we might make this movement forward with David? Because God will renew our identity. He will renew his promises of salvation for you and for me day by day. And he will help us experience him in fresh ways. But there's one other thing here. And I'm not going to dwell on this as long. But David, interestingly, doesn't just share his sorrow with God. That's not enough. That would just be a private experience. He also shares his sorrow with others. And so we too ought to share our sorrow with others. And here's where the psalm is most fascinating to me. You may have seen um, that it's got the salahs in there and all those things that I skipped over. Those are just musical notations. So they're actually meant for the composer to know what to do when they get to the end. It's because the psalms are actually not a private prayer journal. They're not David's diary. The psalms were intentional works of art that had been crafted and worked upon and perfected and set to music and probably rearranged and tried again to get the right instruments to the right tune, to the right thing. And they were used, they were composed in such a way to be used by Israel when they came together to worship God. Songs is what the psalms are. That's what they mean. They were the public corporate songs of God's people. And then they would learn them and go home and sing them when they're working around everywhere doing their daily routine. And so... David has done this interesting thing where he doesn't just share his sorrow with God. He is sharing his specific sorrow with all of God's people. Right? He says it right there at the beginning. This is a song by David, me, when I fled from Absalom, his son. Here is my sorrow, Israel, and I want you to sing about it. And yet he does something interesting. The rest of the psalm 
It's not just about David. He doesn't get really specific. He doesn't tell us all the details of geography or what he had for breakfast or what his specific hopes were, any of those things. He has crafted it so that it becomes a language that everyone can use and relate to, right? You probably, when you heard this read, were thinking of things about your own life. He's done the work, the craftsmanship of sharing this with others so that they could share in his sorrow, so that they could share their sorrows with one another through this psalm. It's very just fascinating that he took his personal problem and transformed it into something that thousands at the time and now billions of people throughout history, diverse people from every station of life you could imagine, every nation, every tribe, every time in history, have come together and been able to sing this song and pray this prayer together in congregations from their hearts to the Lord. Isn't that amazing? David has shared his sorrow with us. And again, they share their sorrow with him in this new shared language. And I think one of the beautiful things about this, see, sorrow is the thing also that makes you feel lonely, right? When you get there, you say, I look at this thing, and you're accusing yourself, and others are accusing you, and you feel like, The universe has conspired against you and you're the only person that suffers like this in this unique way and therefore God doesn't love you and you feel so alone. David, by helping us share our sorrow with one another and learn to do it, is putting us back into community, making us one with others even in our sorrow so that we won't be lonely. And so sorrow can not only be an opportunity for you to reconnect with God in fresh ways, It can be the way that he knits community together and puts you into relationships that are deeper and more intimate than they would be if you just kept your sorrows to yourself, of course. And so, do you share in the sorrows of other people? I don't... Please, after this, go have small talk in the foyer. Do it. It's fine. Go have lunch. But do you create spaces in your life to ask people... Maybe they're even a little not ready for it. How are things? And they go, oh, wait, why did you yada yada that part? What's going on there, you know? (laughs) Ask. Share in the sorrows of others, but also do you share your own sorrows with others? Are you too ashamed or too afraid of rejection or don't want to do the work of transforming it into something that someone else could empathize with you in? And I don't know what all that might look like. It might just be like telling your story, the highs and the lows of it to people more often, to be more honest about the shortcomings in your life, the ways that you feel so far from what you thought it would be, the ways you're disappointed. It could be in small groups in the church or at an event with someone. It could be over lunch. It could be that you do the work of actually going to some of your new teams, the build team or the serve team, and you get to know the sorrows of your community out through the serve team, or you share your sorrows with the leadership here through the build team or your elders and your pastor. To do that work of imagining how we're not so uniquely despised by God or alone, but instead how even in this specific frustration and disappointment, there may be deep human reserves and aspects of others that I can connect with almost only through this thing because we're sharing it with one another. I mean, remember, most of Israel didn't have their own sons trying to kill them, right, in a coup. 
And yet David still found a way to include the whole of Israel in this sorrow. Can we do the same? See, friends, lots of what experiencing God's love through others in the world is. It isn't that sort of romantic, you complete me, that we think we have. Or just some kind of symbiotic fulfillment. Lots of what love is for us in this pilgrim journey is what one of my friends calls non-anxious presence with one another. To just sit still long enough, undistracted, and work to not be anxious together, even in those places where we experience pain. Enjoy as well, but often in the ordinary, sorrowful world that we live in. Sitting with someone over and over again in their brokenness, when they feel powerless to change themselves or their circumstances, and saying together with David and to one another, your identity is in God, and God is faithful, and God loves you. Your hope and help is in the Lord, and he will save you again. Do that work of transforming that we might share our sorrows. And David closes with verse 8, salvation, again, God's deliverance, his helping in real circumstances, Belongs to the Lord, he says, so your blessing be on your people. Your blessing be on your people. This is what we can experience if we will share our sorrows with God and with one another. And I want to encourage you with this in closing, in all of this, this endeavor, for you, for me, to share sorrows with God, but even maybe more challenging with other people, We can only follow David's example here if we remember that the true promise that was given to David didn't come true in Absalom. It didn't come true in his son Solomon that would go on to fulfill some of the promise. It was fulfilled finally when the offspring, the one to come, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, came. After thousands of years of waiting to finally fulfill these promises that have been given to David. Jesus was the promise come true for David. Jesus is the promise come true for us. And when you look at Jesus, you see one who has fulfilled God's promises to us and says they are all now yes and amen, and he's been resurrected, and he's going to bring us all with him into his resurrection. But you also see what? The one who shared our sorrows. The Bible calls Jesus... A man much acquainted, a man of sorrows, much acquainted with grief. He shared our sorrows. But he also shared God's sorrow with us. When we see Jesus, we see one who weeps over his people. So that we might know God has a wounded heart that's wounded over his creation and over all the enemies of joy that exist in the world. That's why the book of Hebrews says we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way we are, yet without sin, so with confidence draw near to God's throne of grace in order to find mercy and help in our time of need. See, friends, we too, like David, even in our sorrow, can learn to sleep, to lie down, if we believe that this Jesus, this God is the one who shares all of our sorrows, who shares God's sorrows with us, 
and therefore we're safe. He is breaking the teeth of the wicked. He is the one striking the enemies of joy on the cheek. He shares our struggles, but he also shares with us his victory. He is the promise and the answer. Every sorrow will be removed, as sure as his resurrection. We will move finally together to the land of joy. This is our journey, and so let's share our sorrows with God and with one another. Amen? If you would, actually, let me pray a little further together. Father, I've said a lot. Uh, David said less and said it better. But we thank you for your word. We thank you that you gave David as a man of faith to write this down. We thank you that your Holy Spirit has preserved it for us and that you speak to us now through it. I pray for each brother and sister here, wherever they are in their journey, whether they're full of joy today or full of sorrow. I pray that they would have time to reflect upon this encouragement and challenge that we have to share sorrows, but also um, to learn, even in this experience as we go, that we are loved by you, that nothing, no sorrow can tear us from that love. No sadness can tear us away from the promises you will keep in Jesus. And so help us as we continue to worship, to taste joy, to share your joy, to share your victory, both in you and with one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.